You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Well, let's pray. Lord God, this day is yours. Um, This Christmas season, we want to focus on what you accomplished and what you did. And maybe all the trappings and busyness that we have just gets in the way. So give this time, Lord. We give this time to you. Holy Spirit, that you'd be working right now through the prophet Isaiah and his words, the vision he had of the future for us, the future that you would usher in, Lord. And we thank you for that, especially in a day and age of chaos and questions and struggles and hopelessness. Lord, we lift up all the people in our area, especially those at this season who are having a blue Christmas, a Christmas that is difficult and a struggle for those who have lost loved ones, for those who are going through tough times. Lord, um, be there. Be present. Be the present of Christmas. Be the gift of Christmas for them. And may we gift them, Lord, with you. So we ask this week... Uh, to work through each one of us here this morning, that we would be able to gift someone else with your presence, that we'd be able to do something in some way, and that you would open up an opportunity to invite, to witness, to care, to listen, to, to love, to serve, and open our eyes and ears and our hearts to that, Lord, that this season would be yours, that we would be yours this week. We ask that you'd be with all the missions and ministries in this area, who are celebrating this gospel hope right now, that you'd be working throughout your entire church, the one church, so that you, Lord Jesus, born in Bethlehem, uh, would reign supreme. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're taking a break right now. Um, We had been doing foundations all the way up through last Sunday, which was, we're seeing the foundations of our lives, the foundation of what we build on, what we trust in, what really makes a difference, the narrative, the story that God has for us, that we saw kind of summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We got to the end of that second article on Jesus Christ. We're taking a break for these three weeks to do the gift of Christmas, which Duh, makes sense, right? Because here we come, like it or not, here comes Christmas. And then after, starting January 8th, we will go back to foundations for about five weeks, January 8th on, to deal with I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. There's a lot in that. And then we're looking forward to that as well. But we're hoping this series today the start of which is really going to give you the gift of Christmas, and you are going to be able to gift others with that as well, okay? And today, I think we're looking at the gift of the future. Sometimes you wonder if the future is a gift, right? But we're going to talk about that today. So here, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10, we're going to read the whole thing. The kids did a pretty good job, but not the whole text, so we're going to read that again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide 
equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened gaff together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The gift of the future. Isaiah 11 speaks about that. And Isaiah doesn't look just to his day and age. It's not just about Christmas, just barely in the future. This is not just about Christmas past or Christmas even present. It's really about Christmas to the future and beyond. This is a look at a vision that that just is out of the blue, even for his day and age, 700 years before Jesus was born, but it goes beyond just that 700-year time period to all the way past our time period into the future. And you might be wondering at this time, why in the world does the Holy Spirit give Isaiah this vision of such a distant future? What, why? Why are we spending all, you know, what would they need back then for that, and what do we need now from that? And I think, I think we need to see where we're all headed and what God is all doing, and where it's all going to end, and what it's going to be like, okay? Because we need to understand it's not just about now, and it's not just about the past, and it's not just about the next few years or the next hundred years, but we're seeing right now in this text, I believe, the present being invaded by the future, that the future is invading the present and changing everything with what This passage, Isaiah is talking about this Messiah, this tender shoot, okay? So there are actually two different words. I don't know if you know this here. You're getting a little Latin lesson. I don't even know Latin really that well. I just know, I knew Greek and Hebrew. Let's put it that way. 30 years ago, I had to know that. But um, Latin is derived from Greek, etc. And there's two words in Latin for the future, okay? The first one is... Futurists, okay, which you can see where we get future from. This is the normal understanding of the future, and that this is where we, looking at the pre- past and the present, we extrapolate what the future is, and we predict the future from what we've seen before, what we see now, where it's going. And so it's kind of like a mathematical equation. You can add it up, 2 plus 72 times 58 will equal, and you can figure that one out. And that's what most people do. This is how they figure out the future. They look at what's going on. It's conventional, we're looking at all the trends, and we're predicting what's going on, a continuation of what we've got. Let me tell you, if that's what we got, a continuation of what we've got now, how hopeful is the future? It's a little bleak, right? Well, here's an example that might, sometimes it surprises us, but it works within convention. And we've got some slides to just kind of pass through slowly. Here's an example of a bad day going worse. Now, you see what's going on here? So he's bringing the car out of the water, right? The tow truck. This was probably in Great Britain. And here we go. 
Okay, so let's try it again, shall we? We're going to try it again, get a bigger tow truck, do the same thing. Let's pull it out, see how well this does, okay? Here we go, and now, if you would have known that's what was going to happen, you would have started off differently, right? But that's kind of the way it is in life. Um, now, once you look at the end results, you go like, why didn't anybody see this beforehand? It fits within the convention of gravity and laws of physics and leverage and all that stuff. That's futurist thinking. Just looking at what we got and where we're headed. And I feel like if we look at what we've got and where we're headed right now, we're headed for a crash, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thankfully, there's a second word in Latin. It's one you've probably heard in some ways, but didn't realize it's really talking about the future. And that word is adventus. Adventus. Okay? That's the future we're talking about that comes up here in Isaiah. Adventus, where we get the word Advent for, it's a season of the church year. Most people think it's just this season that happens usually right after Thanksgiving for four Sundays up till Christmas Day that we prepare ourselves for Christmas. That's not what the word means. The word Advent means arrival. And it's really like the future that is invading the present to change everything that's going on right now. It's a whole new possibility. It's a mathematical equation with so many different things going on that we don't know. Well, we are given the result, but we don't know how we're going to get there. That's what Isaiah is saying in our text. He's saying, this is where it's all headed. This is the result. This is where we're headed. And he paints this picture that's just amazing. And we're scratching our heads. How's that possible? Where is that going? Right? This is God's perspective. And praise God, it's God's perspective. This is why um, one Christian theologian named Jürgen Moltmann put it this way. We don't look into the future from the present, but into the present from the future. Did you get that? We see where we're headed. We see where we're going to end up. And then we go like, okay, then this is going to affect the way I'm living today because I know where it's going. We know the shape of the future. We know who shapes the future. We know who the future is. It's kind of almost like a time traveler. I know this is science fiction, but this is the scriptures where we see the future and God invades the present to change and alter the, the natural direction of where this world is headed to make a difference for your eternity and mine. That's what happens in Jesus. So we're going to learn three things, I think, from this text, pretty simply. Um, three things from this text in Isaiah about that Adventus, that Advent perspective. First, God does what you don't expect. Secondly, God does what you don't deserve. And third, God does what seems impossible. Let's go with point number one. God does what you don't expect. Praise God, he does that. Now, we see that in Isaiah 11. You can look at that text where it says, Isaiah uses this imagery, okay, of a tree, a stately cedar rises up. Giant. It's probably the largest tree in the Middle East. They brought these cedars from Lebanon to build the temple and the palace that Solomon had. And so we get one of these pictures of this stately cedar tree that's grown for hundreds of years. But the picture in Isaiah is that it's chopped down. 
and all that's left is a stump. What's going on with that is the dynasty of David, the one that God had promised through the prophet Nathan, that David would always have a king on the throne, that there would always be a descendant of David somewhere that would be ruling and reigning. And all of a sudden, Isaiah is saying, God's cutting it down. It's over. Why? Well, if you read through the book of Kings and stuff, you see their leaders were kind of like ours, okay? (laughs) Bad, okay? Um, Corrupt, full of themselves, um, leading in the wrong way, um, you know, feathering their own nest, taking care of themselves first, using people, doing all sorts of things. What we're used to in leaders, power grabbers, you know, and I know we try to put checks and balances in our system and work it out. That's why we have checks and balances at all, because we know that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so we've got to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? Well, it still does, but we try to work it out. And so that's the kind of leaders they had as well. All these kings who worship themselves and worship false gods and took them away from, and God says, I'm chopping it down. And Isaiah saw it. Isaiah saw it was coming pretty quickly. It had already started to happen to most of Israel to his north. They were taken over by Assyria, and it wouldn't be long after Isaiah and this text that Judah in the south and Jerusalem itself would be flattened. The kings would be no more. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel would never be in charge of their own property, their own lives, and no king was on the throne. So it was first Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was Greece, you know, Philip, um, you know, uh, not Philip of Macedonia, Alexander the Great, and then it was Rome, even at the time of Jesus, never in charge of their own property, never in charge of their own place, cut down and shot. But, Isaiah says, out of this stump, from the roots, comes a little tender shoot. Now, what's unconventional, what God does that's unexpected here, is that God doesn't say, out of, hey, I'm going to plant a giant sequoia. That's going to look majestic and wonderful. He doesn't even say, I'm going to plant another stately cedar. He says, out of this stump will come a tender, vulnerable tiny, insignificant shoot. Doesn't look like much. In fact, you wouldn't pay attention to it. And yet, through this tender shoot, I'm going to do the impossible. We'll get to that. Okay? Now, Timothy Keller, when I, um, has said this. Imagine, have you ever done strategic planning? Yeah. So you look at the end in mind. Here's Here's, you paint the picture of the future, and then you see where you are. You're over here. How am I going to get from there to here? Right? So imagine, this is what you want. Number one, in 2,000 years from now, I want everyone on planet Earth, virtually everyone, to know who I am or have heard my name. Okay? Anybody in that category right now? Okay. Probably. Okay. But let's say, in 2,000 years from now, I want one quarter of the world's population to center their lives on me, my teaching, and who I am. Wow. And in 2,000 years from now, I would like to have my teaching be considered the most significant teaching 
and the most important revolutionary teaching of morals, ethics, and everything this world has ever seen. So, that's your objective. Where would you start? Would you not say, okay, I better be born and live in the most influential, powerful city in the world and be connected to the most elite, erudite movers and shakers they've got? In fact, I better make a big splash and have laser light shows or ticket tape parades or something as I enter into my glorious state and be able to proclaim my, you know, teaching, my words, etc. And have that kind of, and you'd expect a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of connections have to be made. And this is the way God does it. A tender little shoot. Jesus is born to the poorest of the poor, becomes a refugee before his second birthday, from what we gather, stuck in the most backward places possible in the Roman world. In fact, he never hardly steps his foot into even the largest city and the most influential religious space of his own people, except on occasion from what we gather in the Gospels. He spends almost all of his time with the poor and the homeless and the outcasts and the reprobate. He calls the least influential people possible to be his followers and the ones he's going to entrust his whole life to and his teaching to. And just at the height of his power, when he could enter in and call on a revolution, he's going to get executed. Does that sound like a strategic plan? That's the story of Jesus. It violates all our conventions, all our beliefs about how things get done in this world, and yet that's what God is doing. He is doing it through the seemingly impossible in the most unconventional way. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 states it this way. Paul wrote this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God does what you don't expect, and we'll get to why in a little bit. But secondly, God does what you don't deserve. So in Isaiah 11, you see this, this phrase, that he is going to judge the poor. Did you catch that phrase? That's kind of odd. You go like, whoa, I don't know, that sounds so good. Anytime the poor come in front of a judge, they usually get shafted or they don't get treated. That, the word judge in the Bible is a little different. If you look at the bulk of judges in the Old Testament, you find these are the people who are heroes that come in as rescuers for the sake of. And so it's not like he's judging and condemning the poor or criticizing the poor. It is the fact that he comes to judge for the sake of the poor. He comes, it says, to bring equity to the meek. In other words, the people who cannot speak for themselves, who have nothing to say for themselves, who have no power, no influence in the system, the people who are totally at the margins, who are neglected, and the people you would avoid, this is the one who comes for them. In fact, he doesn't just come for them. Do you realize he becomes one of them? It's not like he commutes in from the suburbs to visit the poor. 
He doesn't just show up in his little entourage and say, I'm for the poor. He is so poor, he has not even two nickels to rub together to pay taxes. He doesn't even have food to help his disciples, and they have to be gleaning on the Sabbath and grabbing whatever grain they can because they were starving so much. This is how poor he is. He's not just talking like, I feel your pain. He went through it. He chose to do that. He does what we don't deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. He takes what we deserve and he gives us what we don't deserve. That's what's amazing. So this is really what's fascinating too. Isaiah 11, the whole book of Isaiah talks about this tender shoot, this branch, this righteous branch, this root of David, this shoot from David. And then it goes on all the way to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. Now, in the NASB, that word we have for young plant is tender shoot. New American Standard Bible. So ESV says this, but guess what? It's the same shoot. This tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground. Sounds, you know, again, the root and the shoot idea. Had no form or majesty we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If you keep reading Isaiah 53, it's... It's the height of what's called a servant song in Isaiah. And you find out this is the one who comes and this is what he does. He becomes despised. We reject him. He is the one who becomes a guilt offering for others. And we considered him cursed by God, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, it says. And yet by his wounds we are healed. He takes what we deserve and he gives us what he deserves the great exchange. The only way Jesus was going to usher in this kingdom view, which is just phenomenal, which we'll get to in a minute, is to undergo the total self-sacrifice, giving up everything for us. I don't know of any leader, any king, anyone who's done anything like this like Jesus. He comes in from a totally different perspective. He comes in from, the, from something that's completely outside of the system. Praise God. So we don't need more of what we got here. We need something different. That's Adventus thinking. That's the advent, the arrival of something we so desperately need that we couldn't have ourselves. That's what Christmas is about, this gift of Christmas, a gift of a new future. And then God does it by a way that we don't think possible. He does the impossible. Now, Isaiah says he's going to bring a time of peace in that the world has never seen where, you know, the lamb and the wolf become best buddies. And an infant, infants, little babies who can't even feed themselves will have pet cobras. That's what he's saying, and it's like, where is this from? How does this happen? Basically, there is harmony between nature and humanity in such a way that we've never seen or experienced something like this. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. Precisely the kind of harmony and the lack of alienation and hostilities this world so desperately needs, he's going to bring that about. He's going to do the impossible, the miraculous. So I was a bit off before, 
right? When I said Jesus' strategic plan was to become famous so that a quarter of the world centers his li- their lives around him, it's, that was not his strategic plan. His strategic plan is right here in Isaiah where it says the wolf's going to lie down with the lamb, where the babies are going to be able to play with the cobras, where there's going to be such harmony throughout this world and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the ocean. That's his intent. That's what he's been about from the beginning. And that's why he came the way he did. Because that's the only way, through the foolishness of God, of self-sacrificing and giving himself and experiencing all the losses that he did throughout life, is the only way he's going to usher in this other kingdom that's so different from this world, this Advent kingdom. Isaiah even goes on farther to talk about the impossible. Isaiah says, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. You saw that at the beginning, right? But that's not the only, so that says he's going to be a descendant from Jesse, who is David's father, and David's line. So he's going to derive his life or come from that. But then in verse 10, it says that in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. So he's called the root. A root is the source of the life of the tree, of the trunk, everything, right? So how in the world can he be, this one, be the root of Jesse, the reason Jesse even exists, the source of life for Jesse and David and the whole dynasty, and at the same time be a shoot? Seems impossible. Jesus even asked that kind of question. He quoted Psalm 110. You can read that sometime. And it was a Psalm of David that says, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, put my, you know. And he says the week of his passion to the most religious leaders and the scribes, everybody who knew their Bibles inside and out, their Old Testament texts, and said, how is it that David says that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, that is, a descendant from David, and yet David calls that one Lord. How's that possible? And everybody's going like, uh, I don't know, and we know. God does the impossible. And the impossible is that our eternal God sends his son, the preexistent son of God, is conceived and born as a tender shoot, as a little vulnerable child. The one who's created the entire universe through whom everything holds together chooses to be held in the arms of Mary where he is absolutely needy. Isn't that wild? God does the impossible. That's kind of who he is and what he's about. And it has always been the impossible that God does that the world goes like, this just doesn't work for us. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, we can believe in God, but, you know, come on. Come on. We need just a little God on the side, a little side dish, you know, a little dessert of God, not the main course. We don't need God doing the... No, I mean, that just doesn't, you know, we're looking for a little help, not a whole takeover. But God does the impossible. Here I'll give you an example of how our, the world, our culture, often gets, um, kind of pushes the idea of this kind of impossible of God out of the picture. About a few hundred years ago, 
there's a movement called the Enlightenment. And in it, basically, most of the erudite and learned people in Western civilization um, started to see that there were naturalistic causes, scientific explanations for everything, that there are no miraculous things. We can figure it all out. And if we don't know it now, we'll figure it out later. But everything is predictable. Everything is from within the system. We know how it all works. And the Christian church in Europe and the United States heard this word and thought, if we're going to remain relevant to the most learned, the most educated, and the most um, cultural elite that we have in any of our societies, we better accommodate Christianity to fit into this worldview. So let's take out anything that would be too objectionable to someone who's really under, you know, scientific understanding and all this stuff. And so we're going to get, reduce Christianity down to just its essence. You know, what really matters in Christianity. And so we're going to take out all the, surgically remove all of the science, you know, all of the stuff that would, you know, just doesn't make sense, all the miraculous. And we'll come down to Christianity is really about ethics, love one another, care for one another, be nice to each other type stuff. And so that's what they did. And there's a huge debate, a huge rift in most of the Christian church in Western civilization between those churches that adhered to this kind of understanding, and they went in this direction. And they were the ones who kind of took over all the universities that started out as very Christian, mission-minded universities from Harvard to Yale. And then uh, a smaller part of the church said, no, the miraculous has to stay. Well, a couple hundred years later, all of these churches that went in this direction that accommodated to the wisdom of the world are in sharp decline, just falling apart. And yet Christianity is growing gangbusters among those who still have a supernatural understanding that God is involved in this world. Africa has become to the point where it's nearly 50% Christian. Latin America, China, India, all over the world when you take the miraculous out of Christianity, you end up with just a bunch of rules, ethics, stuff that you can find in any self-help book or any humanistic philosophy, and you don't even need Jesus for that. What's the point? How appealing is that? You can do it on your own. And yet, I believe what we've needed all along, and what God gives us is that Adventus thinking. He breaks in again and again into our lives and does the miraculous because we so need it. Isaiah would later say in his book, I think Isaiah 63, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what God has done. He has seen our plight. He's seen the difficulties. And he said, I am going to enter in incognito in a way that you would never expect in weakness, in tenderness, in mercy and care and serve you without limit to the point of dying on the cross in my son and yet changing everything as a result. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Christmas is always miraculous. Okay? So, what are some of these um, implications of Adventist thinking? Okay? I think the first one is leadership is always servanthood, okay? Jesus is the only leader that I know that really is worth the title, 
okay? Everybody else either comes in line with it in one form or another or mimics it in one form or another whether they realize it or not, and that's when you see a good leader. Even Paul himself said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I'm following Jesus. Only good leadership is derived from who Jesus is. We're only all following Jesus. And in the Christian church, we better understand that servanthood is the most important or highest office any of us can really have. And any leader is only as good as he or she serves others and gives themselves to others. And that's the kind of thing that changes the world. Okay? It's not about status or position or prestige. It's about service and influence through serving. B. This one might be tough. God cuts down before he builds up. That's kind of what happened to Isaiah and Dinah. You know, they basically got full of themselves. They were leading their own way. But basically, God chopped them down, not because that's what he wanted to do, but that he needed to do so that he could establish what's really going on. He has to basically cut things out of my life often. He's got to chop me down to size at times. And I hate that. It hurts. It's difficult. And yet, that's God's way of building us up. He's not sadistic. He's not... Um, he's not of ill intent in any form. He's not indifferent. He only does what he needs to do in your life for the sake of doing what he really wants to do in your life. Okay? It's death first, then resurrection. It's the cross, then the empty tomb. It's chopping down, then the tender shoot. It's tearing down and then building up. I know we'd like a different way, but I can't... I never learn any other way. <laughs> I just don't. And yet it's when I am finally to the point where again and again, I realize I'm out of control. That's when God is in control. When I can't, God can. I mean, those are the things that work again and again in our lives. And it's a lesson that we keep learning again and again. So if you're in the middle of that, where you're feeling torn down or things are falling apart, it's not that God doesn't love you. He loves you so much. He's allowing that to happen so he can do a greater work in you than you'd ever imagine. He absolutely, don't despair. Don't go like, oh, God must not. No, God absolutely loves you. Absolutely. He's doing the best for you even then. C, live out Advent. That kind of future thinking don't think from the present into the future and say how we're going to get there in that sense, but look from the future into the present and say, okay, how do I live like that even now? I know that's kind of hard to think about, and this quote might be really tough. It's from Hans Schwartz. It's from a book that kind of explains this. Um, I think it's from a book called Eschatology by him, which is a way of looking at the end things and realizing what we're living for now. But this is what he says, Jesus is the paradigm and the anticipation of our own future, and at the same time, the inspiration and the possibility of living toward that future. In Jesus, God's love was announced to us before his kingdom had fully come. Thus, the coming of the kingdom should not cause surprise or terror. Since Jesus announced it, we are able to open ourselves to God's future. We can find communion with him who decides the future of all things and can anticipate the final significance and essence of all things. You want to see how to live, see how Jesus lived the kingdom out in the midst of this world and other kingdoms around him. See how he served the poor, how he gave of himself, how he loved, how he cared. He was always seeing the future that was before us. 
we can now anticipate this is where the world is ending. This is how it's going to come about. There's going to be a universal peace breakout when the kingdom of God is fully ushered in. I can live like that now. So what does that all mean? I think it really comes down to stop making sense, okay? In other words, I know this, what? Don't, don't do things that just add up that seem logical to other people. Oh, well, of course, that's why they did that, because it's to their advantage to do that. Then you're making sense. Do stuff that's like, wait a minute, why did they do that? Why did they give there? Why did they invite? Jesus says, don't, don't always just invite people over who can invite you back. Invite somebody who is not to your advantage at all. You know, the poor, the lame. Do stuff that doesn't add up. That's the kingdom of God. He broke in and did his whole life doesn't make sense to the way this world works. He did the unconventional. We can be, un- you know, I want to I wanna puzzle my neighbors, don't you? I want them to go like, what? What are the Roths about, man? That just doesn't make sense. You could do that, but what, you know, what are they about? Because, man, they're always having people over that, who are they hanging out? Why are they hanging out with those people? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like, wow, wow, of course he invited the president of the university over to his house because, you know, that's a good way to hobnob. No. Why are they having, you know, why, are they, why did they do this for me? Why did they do that for them? Why did they give financially? There was no advantage to them giving away this stuff. That's how we live into the future, because that's what the future is. The future that Jesus is bringing in, we can anticipate today. We live in his pattern. We live and trust in him. And if Christians do that, boom, that's explosive growth, because, boy, are people looking for something different. You can live out Advent, okay? So I guess the question is really, where are you today? Do you need a different future than the one that would come naturally from what you see in this world? Do we just need four more years, five more years, six more years, eight more years of the same that we already have had? Do we need just a continuation of all of this stuff? I don't think so. I think you're looking for something different. Well, you've got something different in Jesus Christ. Do you need to be on a different path yourself? Are you feeling like at the end of the year you don't want it just to keep going into 2017 the same it was 2016? Do you need an Advent intervention? Do you need God to do something miraculous in your life? Do you need, well, it starts with this tender shoot. He comes to you in tenderness and probably in ways that you don't expect and in ways that seem so humble and so simple. You know, I think uh, how quietly, how quietly this, um, Read through O Little Town of Bethlehem sometime, the song, and it basically says how silently the wondrous gift is given where God imparts to human hearts the blessings of heaven. He does not come in force. He does not come to overrule and overpower as a despot. He comes humbly and will serve you completely, and you can welcome him in and receive the gift of this future, regardless of what it looks like in this world right now, that future is yours in Jesus Christ because of Jesus himself is the gift of Christmas. 
so you can rejoice in him who was poor for you. You can follow him who ushers in this kind of peace and mercy, who is totally an unconventional leader, but the leader nonetheless, the only one who's going to give you what you really need. So let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, we don't need more of the same in this world. We need you to break in right now into our hearts and lives, to come into our hearts and lives with your gospel of peace, to enter as that tender shoot, the one who, unlike any other, serves and gives your life for all of us. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are feeling cut down, chopped down, where you've done some deconstruction in their lives right now, Lord, that you would show your mercy and enter in. Show them your love beyond and above all. Do the unimaginable, the unexpected. For those who feel the chaos of this world, we pray for your peace. For those who feel the weight of their sins, the release of your forgiveness and grace. For each of us, Lord, we welcome you now. Have us completely. Use us uh, profoundly in the days ahead that not just us, but others receive this gift of a future, the gift of Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.